to understand that the value you bring is not in what the software cranks out. It's in the magic between you and the client. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-word podcast. I am pleased you are here for another week of the Most Hated F-word podcast. This week, our guest is Sandra Davis. Before we get into this fascinating conversation with Sandra, my body is still filled with positive emotions as I had a wonderful conversation with her today. But before we get into the show, if you can do me a favor, if you've been enjoying the show, guests such as Sandra, could you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? It definitely helps to promote the show and so that we can continuously have fantastic conversations like we did today with Sandra. So who is Sandra? Well, she is a woman who has done so many things in her lifetime and who is making such an important impact in her lifetime. I'm sure you will hear through her voice the tone that she holds that she is passionate about the work she does. A little bit about the work that she's doing. First off, Sandra is a U.S. Navy veteran. She's a nationally recognized speaker, financial coach, educator, and consultant. She is the founder and the lead trainer of the Financial Fitness Coach Certification Program, which supports community-based providers and financial professionals to build the skills necessary to promote change in how individuals and families and communities think and talk about money. A lot of Sandra's work is around this idea of capacity building in her communities. Sandra is also the founder and executive director of Sage Financial Solutions, a San Francisco Bay Area-based organization that develops financial, comprehensive financial capability programs for low and moderate income communities throughout the United States. Sandra is also a financial behavioral specialist, and she has done so much other work and is a real pioneer in this inner side of money. And we really get to talking about how she became this pioneer, what drove her to go against the grain and embrace the discomfort that really comes along with doing something that is not the normal. And I had air quotes as that normal. So during this conversation, Sandra shares her story on how she started to bring awareness to the scripts, the stories she'd been telling herself unconsciously and how she started to make sense of those stories in her life. We do dive into how Sandra is a pioneer in so many different realms. We then discuss Sage Financial and the work that her organization is doing in allowing people to have access to competent ethical financial services so that they can provide support to communities based on what needs they need at this certain time. Sandra's organization is also committed to bridging the gap between financial services, professionals, and low wealth communities. Sandra touches on why this is such important work as it's really going against the system that has been created that for far too long 
has been against these communities. And then we start talking about coaching and how financial coaching can really help facilitate change. And we talk about the difference between financial planning and financial coaching and how coaching really looks at building that inner agency or that self-efficacy. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sandra Davis. She is someone who radiates compassion, extremely empathetic, all while holding the space to believe in her conviction and take the necessary steps in order to make that vision a dream. Enjoy my conversation with the amazing Sandra Davis. Sandra is someone who I have seen come up in many different conversations as I've been investigating or curious to learn more about the inner side of money. And one thing that I kept seeing or experiencing with Sandra is her commitment to what I would call make a difference in this field. And when I observed your work, Sandra, and when I've seen you speak and the research that I've done to help prepare for today, I feel like you radiate compassion, empathy, yet you seem to really embody this uh, sense of courage and conviction and a will to make a difference in the world. So that's why I want to bring you on today. And I'm very excited to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much, Sean. Uh, I appreciate those words. That is uh, my intention. So it's good to know that that's what's hitting. Well, it comes through the microphones or the speakers when I've heard you speak. Thank you. I want to start with your story. I mean, that's a, a very big topic, but particularly I want to talk or start with your money story. And before we start recording, we talked about Brad and Ted Klontz and Rick Kaler, and they've done some really fascinating work on identifying we all have these unconscious money beliefs around money that influence our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Can you take us back to your story when you started to embrace and or accept that you also held these unconscious money beliefs? If that was something that happened, what did you learn about money and your relationship with it? And did this strengthen your overall relationship with yourself? I knew that I had, I didn't know the term was money script, but I knew that in my upbringing, I had this perspective that if I needed more money, I could just work more, right? So there was never an idea of if I needed to retire or buy a home or any of those things that I would save to get it, right? There was always, saving wasn't a thing. So from my perspective, as a daughter of a mother who had five kids and who came from extreme poverty herself, and by the time we got to my, and I'm the youngest of the five, by the time I was born, things were better, right? So my brothers had had, you know, experiences of poverty that were not what I had. So my mom would just work more. She was a maid for a very wealthy family in San Francisco, and they actually bought our house. And my mom paid them the mortgage. And so my mom, 11th grade education, black woman, one of 12 in extreme, extreme poverty in New Jersey, moving to California, you know, by herself in the 60s with three boys. And I was not yet born. She, you know, she worked her way through creating this life for her kids. So I just always kind of had everything that I wanted, even things that I didn't know I wanted. As my mom, I, I guess by being the only girl that she actually raised was, you know, hey, uh, I'm going to give her everything I didn't have. And so when I came of an age where I understood that work equals money, she just would take more jobs. 
you know, if she needed something, if we needed something, she would just take another gig. So in my head, the the script that I carried through was there will always be more money. For me, by the time I came to understand what that meant for my financial life, I actually was a financial planner by that point. I didn't become a financial planner until I was 44. And so I still had the money habits. There were times that I worked three jobs, sometimes that I, you know, I, I was, I always had, you know, this, the side hustle thing that the young folks are talking about today. <laughs> well, yeah, I ain't new to that game. That's been, you know, that's not, that's not new. That's not new. Yeah, they, the names are sexier, but, you know, we just had multiple gigs, you know, to make ends meet. The benefit for me was hearing, you know, Brad and Ted and, and Rick talk about how these things shape you. That's the part I didn't understand. I didn't get how much of my life was shaped by that perspective. So much so that I got out of the Navy after four years of active duty, broke with a son. Fast forward 20 years, almost to the day, my son gets out of the Navy, broke with two children, right? And so I was passing down this generational financial struggle without really realizing it. The thing I think that struck me the most was if you don't know it exists, you don't know you can change it. And so that was really the most powerful part for me. So doing that work, I, I, I remember <laughs> I went to South Dakota and, you know, uh, like I said, I think I probably doubled their black population just by getting off the plane. And so I was so eager to understand it, you know, that even as a new financial planner, I hadn't even finished my master's yet. As a new financial planner, I went to Kinder's two-day workshop. I went to this thing with Rick and Ted that was a week long in South Dakota. I just kept learning about it, you know, reading everything I could get my hands on because I, I learned really early in this career change that everything that I knew, all this brilliance from my master's degree that I thought was going to change the world meant absolutely nothing if people didn't understand their behavior and didn't understand what, what created the behavior. So it was the same. I mean, that story is my story. It's not something separate and apart. I've made every money mistake possible and some of them twice, even after having a master's degree, you know? So, so it's, I'm really clear that information is not enough. Knowing better doesn't mean doing better, but you can't do better if you don't know better. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was that evolution, right? A first understanding, okay, Sandra, this is a real thing. You know, you have you have a belief that is harming you because I could just always get more work. It's sometimes very well-paying work. You know, I, you know, I could get, I could make money. That wasn't the issue. I couldn't keep money. Those were the life events that kind of created that for me. As you're talking, it just, it really shows is when we embrace perhaps the discomfort of diving into our money stories and the discomfort that lies there is what we can all learn from it. And just hearing your story really, really shows and highlights that when we do this work, the messy, difficult work, the benefits transcend beyond the dollars and, and cents. As you were talking about your story, you talked about how you, you, you were living in poverty, your mom had five children, but yet you didn't have this scarcity mindset around money, which was, I found interesting because the book Scarcity, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, they talks a lot about, yeah, how we have mental bandwidth that lower income taxes us and doesn't allow us to think about side hustles, as the, you mentioned, the new kids are saying, or how to get more money. But when I hear you talk about your mother, I, I see she probably had, or you maybe 
adopted some of the characteristics of the resilience to move across the country to just get a job and to help make sure her kids don't feel that way. So it was interesting to hear your story and then things started to make sense. And it seems like you must have embodied a lot of your mom's tendencies on, well, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. My mom was a badass. So first, she experienced extreme poverty, but she made sure that her kids didn't. I don't think even for my brothers, I know that they didn't have the same experience that I had, but they didn't have the same experience she had either. I think what I notice is that we weren't, none of us, I mean, none of us are bound by what my mom went through. None of us are bound by the experience. I know that they had more insight into it because, you know, they were significantly older than I am. But for me, when you, when I look at my brothers now, none of them have a scarcity mindset. None of them have, no, no, they have a service mindset, which sometimes, as I'm sure you're aware, people who have a a spirit of service sometimes take an unintended vow of poverty, right? And and so there's some of that by, by believing that we are responsible, the concept of Ubuntu, I am because you are, that, that we, we are responsible to each other. So I think there's that. that so I'm, I'm grateful that we have that. I'm also grateful that we don't have limitations. My brother got his undergrad degree at 50 plus. My, the younger of the, the, the men children became like one of the first black flight attendants in, I think it was like maybe the late 70s. So yeah, first black men flight attendants. And he flew all over the continent of Africa. None of us have that inhibited perspective, but we all do have that element of, I've got to do more than one thing. So none of us like just got one job and that's all we did. And we did that until we retired and we were, you know, none of us have that. And I, I think that's a direct uh, reflection. And I would even say a benefit uh, of the our mom and how she lived and worked. I have to agree with you. Your mother sounds like a badass. It seems like she gifted you guys with this level of compassion, but yet this will, like I opened up with this will to make a difference. And I was going to talk to you next about pioneers because I consider you one of the pioneers in the inner side of money, but I can see where you get it from your mother and hearing about your brothers. They're doing similar things just in other fields. So I do want to talk about pioneers. And when I think about pioneers, I think about people who embody a vision of what they what they hold to be true. They're bold, they're passionate, original thinkers, confident and positive. And when I look at the work you're doing and hearing the story you're telling now, I, I feel like you definitely embody those characteristics, especially on the inner side of money. And from what I understand is you went to your first Nasruddin meeting at a time when females weren't necessarily joining these meetings as, as much as we would like to. And I believe you were the only, the only Black woman there. So I can imagine, and I believe this was in the transition period of you changing careers. So I can imagine there was a lot of that discomfort or resistance that maybe told you not to go or what are you doing? What role, if anything, did curiosity, courage help you to, or not help you, but it enable you to, to get to that meeting and become the pioneer as you have been in the, in the inner side of money? You know, it, it's hard to be a black person who succeeds at anything in this country without courage. Right. So if you're in the United States and you are of African descent without courage, you will not get far. So that was innate. So I didn't have to muster up anything special. The thing I did have to do is be willing 
to be in places that could sometimes be very offensive to me and my people. And often because of what I look like, people don't know. So they would say things in front of me that they didn't realize that there was a black woman in the room. So if there was anything, that was the hard part. So all of them who are at these conferences now, FTA, F, not FTA, but FPA, Nasruddin, Kinders, all of them now that were there when I was there are wondering, did I say anything? Yeah, so y'all think about it. You know who you are. <laughs> um, so the, the courage, which you're right, comes directly from my mother, was more about, am I willing to look inside? Am I willing to grapple with those parts of me that have to face that knowledge and intelligence is not sufficient? And what value as a financial professional do I really want to provide? Am I the one that gets alpha? You know, am I the one, you know, the courage came from being willing to say, I know that that's how everybody says you make a living by being that financial planner that can hook up somebody's portfolio. That just didn't draw me. What drew me was helping people change and helping people understand where money was helping and where money was harming. And so when I started my nonprofit in 2005, my mission statement then, which has recently, I think recently been adopted by the CFP board, was to ensure that all people had access to competent and ethical financial planning, irrespective of their income or wealth. They've left that part out, um, mm. but that was my mission statement back in 2005. And actually, in all fairness, the CFP board is the, the CFP foundation at that time was the only group that funded my work. Nobody else would fund it. They did. The point of being able to go to these places and do these things, I was active in FBA. I was on the, diver, you know, one of the first members of the diversity task force. I wrote the first pro bono boot camp for the foundation. Well, it was FBA then, but the foundation has it now. What it was is that that ensuring access, you know, I was told by more people that I can count, oh, Sandra, you know, you're going to have to go and make your money first, do financial planning for high net worth individuals, secure your own money, because I was not, there was no way I was going to be able to retire, right? I was 44, had no money, you know, go do that, make your money, and then help the people you want to help pro bono. And I was like, yeah, I'm too old for that. That ain't going to work. You know, I'm going to do what makes my heart beat fast and figure out how to make a living. And I absolutely attribute that to Gladys Davis. My mom, that's just who she was. And that's what that did for me. It's like, yeah, as much as I like the idea of the security of it, the fact was I viewed myself as too old, too cranky to go to work for somebody else doing something that didn't make my heart beat fast. And so that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And so that trailblazer part, that pioneer you talk about, all of the things that I wanted the incubator to do, young people now, people who are where I was, you know, people who are in their late 30s, early 40s, they're doing it now. Dana Wilson has CHIP. Dominique Henderson has Jumpstart. All of the things that I was trying to create back then that nobody cared about, you know, nobody cared about. No, Well, they, they liked it in theory, but no one was willing to, very few, it's not fair to say no one, very few people were willing to put their money where they say their heart was. And had to be a pioneer. It was not abnormal for me to, to be the only Black woman in a thing, at a meeting, at a conference, at a retreat. You know, Frank Perret, a uh, financial planner out of Oakland, he and I were on the cover of uh, Advisor Magazine for our pro bono work at the same time. And it was like my first time seeing a Black dude, you know, <laughs> in, in the field, you know. And he lived right in Oakland. He literally lives down the street from me. But I didn't know about him because I was in San Francisco and he was in the East Bay. So, you know, literally you can be in a silo 
And so now, you know, there's Quad A, there's all of these other places where Black professionals can blaze trails together. So I'm not a, I'm still blazing trails because of the approach that I take now, but I'm not a Lone Ranger anymore. And things that I used to have to think about, like, how do we get more people of color into the profession? How do we make sure that people can do their work however they want to do it? If they don't want to work at a bank or work at an investment firm or only work with high net worth individuals, how can they do that? So I feel like if I'm a pioneer at anything, and I am, let's, let's not have any false humility, I am. That's the thing. If people don't learn anything else from me, what I want them to know is the wonderful thing about this profession is you can do it however you want to do it. You can serve whoever you want to serve and however you want to serve them. And so, you know, I'm grateful for the people I've connected with along the way, in addition to Brad and Ted and Cheryl Garrett with the hourly planning, because for many folks that I wanted to serve, the hourly planners were the only way those folks were going to be served. And so she taught me how to have a model that I could use to serve low and moderate income people. I just did it on a sliding scale. So I'm probably one of the early starts of creating a sliding scale for people because everybody thought it wouldn't work. But I'll tell you, when I would talk with clients and we were just starting out together, I would tell them out the gate, when you have more, you will pay me more. And not one person complained. You know, not one person complained when their rates went up and they stayed with me even as they started to make more money until it got to the point where they really like needed serious investment stuff when is when I pass folks off. Thank you for that. And you being this trailblazer, this pioneer to, to your point, it, it gives people permission to, to, to follow suit. I mean, whether it's in financial planning or whatever we want to do in our lives, just someone who we can look up to, to give us permission to actually step into the light that we have within us, I think is a, is a gift that you leave in your wake as people come behind you. Yeah, thank you. And my goal there is I'm not the main character. They are. You're the main character. I'm supporting cast. So if my journey, if my experience, if the doors I've had to kick in because they were not open to me, if the doors I have to kick in, I can hold them open for you, then I've done my job. You know, like I said, I, you know, I jokingly say about the humility. It's not that I don't have humility. It's that I understand what I bring and I understand what the value is. And I think that that's what's so important for financial planners to understand that the value you bring is not in what the software cranks out. It's in the magic between you and the client. You know, it's the magic between you taking this information and, and remembering that the human is, is where you're trying to connect. And so if we could do that, I think it's more satisfying for us as professionals too, you know, I mean, to, to be able to watch someone go from my first client, she called herself a financial F up, right? That was how she described herself when we had our introductory phone call and it took us five years. But by the time we were done, she was like a financial fireball. I mean, she just was on it, you know, owned her home, had a child. She decided to have a child by herself. She did that, just everything that she wanted to do. So she went from this thinking of, man, I'll never get this right. You know, I just messed this up to not only do I know what I'm doing, I know when to get help when I need it. So to me, when I can do that sort of thing, I think that's the most impactful stuff. Yeah. And there's no software that can do that. 
And to have someone like that who the shame, the judgment, the embarrassment that would come along with saying to someone, I'm financially effed up, but for you to sit across, to just see them as a person beyond the numbers, I think is so important for them than to have, again, that permission to be like, I can do this, you know, I can implement whatever change I desire. Yeah. And you know, Sean, honestly, so I teach at Golden Gate. I teach at American College in Cal Lutheran. Every time I start a new course, every time with all of the students that I have, every single one of them, I'm hard pressed, maybe one, maybe one in the more than 10 years that I've been teaching. Maybe one has said, I do it for the money. Every single financial professional that I come across, the first thing, go ahead, what, tell me, what do you think they say? Why do they do this? To help people be independent or financially independent. To I want to help people. Financial free. I want to, exactly. Yeah. That's it. And so this isn't only for the people we serve, it's for our own social and emotional well being as professionals. Right. And so it's not just, you know, us learning this money psychology stuff. It's great for our clients. It's great for us because Mm -hmm. then we start to understand our real value. Our real value is in what we do with people, not what we do for them. You know, and I think that that's just something that isn't taught. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not taught that. We're taught, you know, you take the test, you understand the test, you become a CFP, and then, you know, you make sure that everybody's plan, uh, the Monte Carlo simulation is on point. You know that when you say we don't do it for them, like unintentionally, maybe, I don't know, but it seems like, yeah, we're trained as a way, like the financial planner of the whatever system is trained to be doing things for you all the time. It's quite paternalizing, actually. And... Do we change then? I've witnessed over the last, I've been in this field for 10 years and we're becoming more in debt in Canada and we're becoming more stressed about money. So, And that's by design. As you probably know, I do a lot of work with people who experience poverty or people who are low and moderate income. And I will hear people say things like, oh, the system's broken. The system ain't broken. The system's doing what it's designed to do. It is designed for us to be unconscious consumers who pay that, what is it, 1.4 billion in overdrafts? We're just, this is designed. This is designed. And so, you know, when people are suffering, we have to distinguish between, is it in a, a system that is oppressive and causing this circumstance? Or is it your behavior? Or is it a combination of the two? And so from my particular perspective. I work specifically with the individual because I just don't have the mental and emotional fortitude to deal with systems that benefit from staying exactly where they, the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, that's why I'm so proud of the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, because they're trying, you know, they're trying. I I don't think it's going to change anything, but they are trying. That in and of itself shows people another way is possible. I mean, think about, well, maybe not in your lifetime, but in my lifetime, I remember being on an airplane with people smoking. I remember being on an airplane and one of my favorite actors at the time, I'm not going to say his name, but he's in in the movie Sounder. We got on the plane, my mom and I got on the plane and I wanted us to sit next to him, right? He said, well, no, sweetheart. I know as a kid, I'm going to have to go to the back to the smoking section. They had smoking section, Sean. 
they had a smoking section on the airplane. Now, how idiotic is that? Right. But that that was a system we were in. Right. And that has changed. But look at how many people died. Look at how much of the cost before we got to where we were willing to change the system. So from my perspective, doing this individual work that I do can help individuals know that something else is possible. And then for those who are willing to take on the the bigger change of the systemic issues, they at least have the fortitude and the internal true north for themselves to take on that battle. That's not, that's not my battle. I just, you know, I curse too much. I have bad, I have, you know, that's why your podcast is such a great fit for me because, you know, I was in the Navy for eight years. So yeah, I got that potty mouth thing. I got the F words right in there. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, thank you for that. And when we look at systems and the, the difficulty to change the systems, I think, again, it goes back to this pioneer or this trailblazer for you is to be one of the individual within the system creating potentially change in someone's individual family system really helps them individually. And I think that, again, paves the way for others. And so when I look at Sage Financial, your, your company, as you mentioned, you guys are committed to providing access to competent ethical financial services. And from what I also understand is you're trying to bridge the financial gap between low and moderate communities. For, for people listening, why, if anything at all, is it important for us to use an intersectional lens when we're talking about money and providing access to reliable and fair financial services to the communities uh, within our greater context? The reason that that it's so important is that much of our financial systems are designed to exclude rather than include people, right? So, So if you think about someone who in the U.S., if they are low income enough to receive public benefits, right? So if you get food stamps, SSDI, the Supplemental Social Security Disability, if you get those kinds of things, you cannot save more than $2,000 without losing your benefit, right? So if I'm working with somebody, so say you and I are working together and you're like, yes, Sandra, I've been out of work for a couple of years because I don't know if you've heard, but there's a pandemic. And so, you know, I'm trying to feed my kids. So I've been on public benefits for the last year. And now I'm getting to the point where I've found this gig that I can make, I can make money again and I can start saving to get my family back on track. And I said, okay, Sean, that's a great thing. Let's go ahead and start figuring out your savings plan. And if I don't understand that if you save $2,001, you lose all those benefits, I can harm you, right? I can encourage you to save and do you harm by inviting you to, to save an amount that guts your safety net. Now, I'm not saying that the safety net should go on in perpetuity. You shouldn't be like, you know, taking, you know, solo trips to the moon and still getting public benefits. But I am saying that we have to think about what does it mean to be financially healthy in our respective countries, right? In the United States, having the United States of America, having, you know, a job at $60,000 there's very few places that that's going to be enough. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I think a couple of years ago, for for a family of four, poverty level was 160,000. And so, you know, when we have those kinds of systems and we have those those kinds of uh, situations, we want to make sure that no matter where someone is, number one, they can get reliable advice. They can get good, knowledgeable advice. 
a lot of folks who don't have a lot of money end up cashing checks at payday lenders, doing things that are financially harmful, rent to own places for their furniture. And so that's going to like perpetuate to the point you made earlier about the book scarcity. It's harder to make good financial decisions when you're under stress. And so if they don't have access to somebody that says, hey, let me, without shame, judgment, abusing you for being in that situation, let me help you find your path forward. We walk that together, right? That's not me saying, hey, well, Sean, what you got to do is this, 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 and don't do this anymore. Stop buying that coffee. How do we walk that together so that you are owning your personal power and, and you're not feeling like, oh man, I should go better. I'm a smart person. How did I get in this situation? situation but that's what we have you know yeah you just think about these systems again about how they're dispersed like the outcomes that you're describing are are designed to to come that way and if i go to the individual system level you're creating a new system for these people to 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 be seen and i've heard you talk before is that uh for black people the systems have been designed to take not to give and it seems like you're Again, on the individual systems of that family that joins you, you're, you're reversing that. Yeah, that's my goal. You know, I'm 61 now. I started in this field at 44. It has been life-changing for me. Uh, it's so funny. I was talking to my granddaughter. My granddaughter's 22. And we, we took a walk yesterday. And she says, so Grandma, what is it exactly that you do? I, I remember I had my pink cowboy boots and we went into a big building with a big elevator. What were we doing? (laughs) We were doing financial education. You know, I was teaching people about money. And so now to watch her intrigued by what I do, she's done her money habitudes cards. You know, she's, she's done the stuff to learn about money for herself and she's a saver, but she's a saver out of fear. Right. And so we talk about that. And so to, to be able at this age, to have a conversation with a younger version of me, because she looks just like me, uh, a younger version of me about things that I didn't understand at her age is just such a gift. And we all get to do that. We all get to do that. We get to do that with our families. We get to do it for our friends and we get to do it and make a living. And I think that that's what a lot of people don't understand. I make a good living, you know? I mean, I'm not, I'm not in a place where I can retire yet, but I certainly live the way I want to. As a professional, we get to do it. And it does have the impact that I hear so many of us say that we want to help. Well, I, I can hear from your tone and your facial expressions. I don't think you want to retire anytime soon. <laughs> and the work, you know, what you're doing needs you right now. Yeah, I'll say this. I, I do think that that's true because I have a perspective, but I will say this. I am so proud of what I'm seeing younger folks doing. I mean, they're going to take this thing places that I never even dreamed of, you know? So I'm just so grateful that I'm of the mind, not that they have to pay their dues. I think so many young people hear that and dues are different now, you know, than when I joined the profession and with a lot of people who are senior level in the, in the field now, the dues for folks, you know, in their thirties and forties and even early fifties is different now. And, and they get to live the life that they want along the way while they're paying their dues. And for a long time, that just wasn't an option for new people in the profession. So I just really try to encourage people, figure out what makes your heart beat fast and do that thing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you you might be broke for a while. I'm not gonna. I took out a home equity line in order to survive this when I first joined this profession, and I think I took out about a hundred thousand dollars. It was during one of the peaks, I guess, before 2008. Right? I lived on that. I lived on that hundred k for about three years. You know, so you can imagine how lean our household had to be. It was also in the midst of a crash. So, yeah. And so now, of course, I don't have that problem. But it's but it's because I was willing to take the risk on me. You know, I was willing to take a gamble on me. I couldn't find my place in the field. There was no no place for me. So I had to make one. And now I'm watching all these different folks who are doing amazing things. Uh, this young woman, Sonia, she and a colleague, I can't remember her partner's name is, but they just started a group called Choir to work on diversity in conferences. And, you know, there's there's all, all this work that was just unheard of 15 years ago. Now they're doing it. We owe it to them to do for them what nobody did for me. We really need to create a pathway for them so that they can knock down some of these doors that persist. Yeah. And for as someone who benefits from the system, it, I, I really learn a lot when I, I listen to you speak. And when I listen to what you're just talking about now, I listen to you on Journey to Launch. And I could just, I could hear her energy talking to you. And we talk about that permission to, to step out and uh, to go against, you know, that inner feeling like, oh, should I do this? But you're giving them permission and she's doing such a fabulous job. So yeah, yeah I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. So a lot of your work is not a lot, but you use a lot of coaching. So when yes. we look at financial planning, there's usually this plan that we give to people that's 50 pages long. It sits in their desk and they feel shame every time they open their desk. You take a different approach of coaching. Can you explain why you use coaching? And uh, I, I recently am, I'm taking a master's in uh, positive psychology and coaching. So I've learned a little bit more about what coaching is and what it isn't. So perhaps can you touch on this idea of coaching and how you feel it's been able to meet people where they're at with the population that you work with and even beyond the low to medium income households that you use. But how does coaching help us change? Yeah, so I'm glad you're taking that class. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yes, it's, it's, it's lovely stuff. So I started focusing on coaching when I realized that my knowledge didn't change anyone else's behavior. Even mine sometimes, right? <laughs> and so I was most struck by was that when people, and, and there's research that shows self-efficacy is the greatest predictor of change. So if I believe I can change, I'm more likely to change. If I don't believe I can change, I'm less likely to change, right? And so then, of course, we learned from Ted that two things have to happen. You have to believe change is possible and you have to believe it's possible for you right? So change is possible, sure, right? But is it possible for me? And so that's why I I took the route of coaching. Back in 2007, I kind of identified what I call the financial, the continual financial care, kind of like based on the standards of care that you would find in the healthcare system. So it starts with, you know, education, counseling, coaching, planning, and therapy. Now, therapy wasn't a thing back then. Financial therapy wasn't a thing back then. So I added that when we developed the Financial Therapy Association. But The point of that is a person can be anywhere along that continuum. They can have a plan and not execute. They can have all of the knowledge and not use it. So as a professional, we get to do any one of these interventions, as long as we have the skill and the knowledge to do so, so that we can meet people wherever they are. 
I'll give you an example. I received a referral from a financial planner who had worked with someone for a couple of decades. And now that client was no longer making the kind of money that they were used to making. The problem is they were not making a corresponding shift in their spending. And so the planner is just like, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I've tried to get them to not do this. I can't get them to. And, and here's the thing. The time to have addressed it was back there when you first noticed it. Not waiting until they're outpacing the safe withdrawal rate, right? If we wait until they're outpacing it, even more shame kicks in. So, so now we've got the behavior and now the shame because they, they weren't feeling the shame before. They could spend like that and it wasn't, there was no shame attached. Now they're spending, shame is attached, expectations are set, their community's looking at them a certain way and used to looking at them a certain way and now it's different. And so it's harder to get that behavior to change. And it's not just the old dog, new tricks thing. It is their identity is collapsed with their financial choices and their financial lifestyle and all these other things. So if when we're early in our relationship with a, with a client, a financial planning client, we can start to use coaching skills to help them navigate what this plan will mean in their life, not just at a certain point in time, but what does it mean in your life today? So it's not something in the drawer, it's something in your life. And the accountability partnership that we can develop in a coaching relationship that is usually different than a planner relationship. The planner relationship is, I'm the expert. You pay me to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you the answers. Go ahead and do it. Except mm-hmm. for, of course, the assets and the management. I got that, right? <laughs> and so if we want to have that kind of relationship, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So having coaching skills allows us to explore the opportunities and obstacles along the way and stay engaged along the way. So it doesn't become, well, have you done this yet? And have you checked this box? And, you know, it's like, okay, so, you know, one of the things that we talked about is you having to trust. And I've noticed that since our last meeting, you haven't done that. So, you know, talk to me, what do you think's happening there? So I can say, well, you know, by not having to trust, if you, you know, I could do that. Or I could say, so what's up with that? What do you think that's about? What a different approach versus what we sometimes hear, can't say all the time, of, oh, this client's non-compliant. I don't know what's wrong with them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of them. Versus exactly. again, seeing them as the person. And that's where I see coaching comes in. And to your point earlier, that's where that self-efficacy comes in. And holy smokes, does that transcend beyond money once that's there? And that's what it's about, right? Coaching is about, you know, it's like, what's the difference? Coaching is about transformation. It is not a transaction. And people like to think financial planning isn't a transaction, but everybody behaves like it is. You're going to pay me. I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to do the plan. If that's not a transaction, I don't know what is. You might be doing life planning. You might throw in George's three questions or something, but that doesn't mean that you're supporting transformation, right? So my job is to work with the human so that the human can work with their plan. One of my uh, professors in our coaching courses has said something along the lines of coaching is allowing people the time and space to unlock their own power and potential to find their own performance or something to that degree. That's, exact, that's it. Which goes against what financial planners normally think. Because we want to be their hero. Mm-hmm. We want to be the expert and we're afraid if we join them on the journey 
that they won't think we're as valuable as we say we are and they won't want to pay those fees. I don't want to make this about me, but I I can't help resist this one statement is I joined this field unconsciously because I recognized or it felt good to be validated that it's, you're making money and you can progress and people are like, wow, well, we got a CFP and all these designations and it felt good. And I was doing, I was doing for people all the time. I'm helping you. And it wasn't until things in my life in a way made me become curious to learn more. And I recognized that I was a shy kid growing up and I wanted to be validated, heard, seen, and making money was something I attached power to. And it just snowballed from there. And it wasn't until I recognized that as once I did, I was like, oh, okay. Well, but the lovely part about that, Sean, is that to accept that without self-judgment, right? So that's the difference between, oh, wow, I noticed that my ego was wrapped up in this. Is that really where I want it to be, right? Do I understand that my value to this client is so much greater than me putting data into this machine and spitting out this plan? My value to them is who I am as a human. They chose me. Anybody can create a plan. They chose me because there's something I did that made them feel safe or did something that I showed them that made them feel that they could connect with me. And so without you being open to your own, and you know, and, and you know, I'm a California hippie, so deal with it, your own greatness, right? That what you're offering them is part of you, right? So the value they're finding, yeah, is it good to be smart? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I got a master's. I, I came out of the, with waving my master's degree in the air thinking, yeah, I'm going to change everything because <laughs> I know this stuff. Yeah. That didn't change a thing. And my ego was, I mean, you know, my ego was just off the charts over, you know, I was a student of the year and all, you know, all this stuff. And it, it didn't mean anything until I could really meet people where they were. And that was the shift of taking the focus off of my performance and into my presence. So my presence with them is what matters most. Now that doesn't mean I don't have to be an expert. And so in my financial coach training program, you have to be an expert. There are some, you you know, people can take life coaching and and that's all fine. I don't knock it. You know, I, I don't knock it at all. But to be a financial coach, I believe you have to be a financial expert and is very skilled at coaching. And, you know, one of the things that just breaks my heart when I see people talk about coaching is, you know, they say a coach guides you. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. That's it. So stop, stop mm-hmm. right there. That is not what happens. <laughs> a coach does not guide you to anything. A coach pulls up alongside of you and walks the journey with you as you self-discover. And they invite accountability so that you keep your commitments to yourself. And when financial planners judge their performance on a client's adherence to the plan, they will always feel not good enough. How it's so interesting how that feeling of not good enough from the advisor can transcend into the client, which then can just kind of snowball and deviate away from what the the stated goal is. I think I heard you talking about that on a podcast, but it's until we know ourselves, it's very difficult to do some of this work to hold that space. I'm looking at the time here and I have like 44 pages of other questions, but no, and I, I know you have a background in mindfulness and I wanted to talk about that within the coaching, but we only have a couple of minutes. I want to respect your time. I understand in your break, 
you just like your pause around 44, you decided to start making jewelry made out of beads. You talk about the coaching, this transformation with the clients. Have you ever considered making people like a money bead bracelet reminds them of what's important? I actually have. I've done those. I do them based on what the person is needing. Like, so some people need self-compassion, so they're going to get rose quartz. You know, some people need courage, so they're going to get tiger eye, you know? So yeah, I did that. But you know, then people started telling me what they wanted me to make. So that was just like, yeah, that I can't, I'm not set up that way. (laughs) And, And I do want to say about the mindfulness, that has been a really big and significant part of my work, right? My own mindfulness practice and being a certified mindfulness teacher is a really big part of what enabled me to do my inner work. That's really what it was for me, the ability to be kind to Sandra. You know, that allows me to be kind with others. My experience with mindfulness helped me develop that kindness and compassion towards myself with these stories that I was telling myself in my money life and my professional life. I feel, and I'd like to get your perspective, that a financial coach or financial planner potentially could benefit more from mindfulness than really trying to understand these sexy, cool, nuanced calculations of a derivative or understanding these formulas that I speak from experience at one time just boosted my own esteem. And I was so busy trying to figure those out. I didn't have time for mindfulness because I thought I was almost better than that. Now I realize how crazy that is. So as a financial planner, financial coach, where does the value of mindfulness come in? The core of mindfulness is self-awareness. When I'm talking with someone, when I'm working with someone, I can self-regulate because I'm self-aware. So if I get triggered, I know I'm triggered. That doesn't mean I'm not triggered, right? It doesn't mean, even with my coaching skills, it doesn't mean I don't have an ego around having a master's in financial planning and a financial behavior specialist and the coach, you know, I've got like 50 certifications. That doesn't mean I don't have ego around those. I've worked hard for those. I just understand when my ego rears its head. So what mindfulness does is it allows me to manage those aspects of myself that may be undesirable. If a client sends something to me that hurts my feelings, I don't have to respond to that. I don't have to react to that. I can notice it and decide what I want to do about it, right? So it might mean change it. Me and me, it might mean we're not the right fit. It could mean anything, but I don't have a visceral reaction. My amygdala is not hijacked. So I can use my executive function. And the only way that I can do that is by number one, noticing that my heart starts to race and my jaw gets a little bit tight and my shoulders start to creak towards my ears. And then I can breathe and I can settle that down and I can stay present in the conversation so that the client feels heard. I'm not uh, hijacked. One of my first clients before I became super skilled, right? I had a client, a couple Love this couple. They were fantastic. One of them, the spouse was a stay-at-home mom. And then the other was the primary breadwinner. And so after we did the plan, I said, okay, so, you know, one of you is going to have to, you know, implement this plan. Which one of you wants to be the one to do that? And the wife very timidly, and she had not been timid, right? So this threw me, right? She had not been timid. She said, I'd like to try it. And her husband said, hmm, you're the one that doesn't like to balance the checkbook. Honey, I had all, I was so triggered, John. I was like, this dude is abusive. How can she stay with a man like this? I wanted to throw this dude off his own balcony. And, and you know, that's frowned upon, right? You just can't, 
You can't throw people off their balcony, right? And so, but but it was me. I mean, fast forward 15 years later, this couple is happy and married and got another kid and another dog. And, it, you know, it was my stuff. But I had made up this whole thing because I was triggered. And so what mindfulness can do for me, whether it is the stock market, whether it is client rejection, whether it is clients being non-compliant, I can stay grounded and focused and present to whatever is happening, however it's showing up in my body, and I can decide what's the most appropriate course of action. And so the combination of coaching and mindfulness together really allows me to use this voice instead of the voice that I can use when I'm like super agitated. It seems like it's going back to that idea of cultivating self-efficacy where that mindfulness gives you that moment to ground yourself and respond as opposed to react. Yeah, absolutely. If there ever is a round two, maybe I should book eight hours instead of one hour because I, I feel like you're just such a fascinating individual. My, my last question is towards, you mentioned you had a granddaughter. So we, if your granddaughter decides to have a child, imagine you're somewhere that brings you a lot of peace. You're on a front porch, you're looking out at a meadow, a lake, an ocean, whatever it is the snow in Alberta, Canada that we have right now. (laughs) And you decide to write a letter to your great-grandchild about what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money. What would be a core message in that letter? Oh my, no one has ever asked me this. So first I'm on my porch and I'm looking out over my garden where I'm growing my collard greens, my black-eyed peas, my fish peppers, my scotch bonnet. And I'm writing to this child to say, Money is a tool that impacts every aspect of your life. If you put it in its proper place, it can serve you. And if you know what's most important to you, it can help you achieve your wildest dreams. And my final line is always, I keep my needs small so that my wants can be outrageous. Thank you. Maybe that letter will be written. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for your time. For people listening, where where can they find more about your work, your company, your organization? Sagefinancialsolutions.org. We are a nonprofit agency and we welcome the support of our work. We're we're doing a lot of cohorts for particularly underserved communities. And then I'm also on Facebook, Sage Money, and then also, of course, on LinkedIn. So I'm not a lot, not very active on social media right now, but LinkedIn, I'm there. And then also our website. And you can find out more about me, what what we do in my training, the Financial Fitness Coach, and all the other exciting programs that I work on. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful insights today. I, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sandra Davis. Sandra really had me rethinking many elements that I hold to be truths and really questioning should they be truths. If you are enjoying the conversations that we are having with individuals like Sandra, if you want to support the show, I'd like to ask if you could leave a review. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts would be super helpful. And you could support the show by sending your favorite episode to a family, colleague, friend, whomever you think might find our conversations wonderful. Until next week, have yourself a wonderful week.